Good morning. In the movie The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy, our main character, I'm sure most of us know the story, she was swept away to a land mysteriously by a tornado to the land of Oz that blew through Kansas where she lived. And from the moment she realized she wasn't home anymore, she made it her mission to get home. That's the only thing that she wanted was to get home. And she soon finds out that there's a wizard that lives in Oz in the Emerald City and that this wizard can help her get home. And so she sets out on this journey down the yellow brick road and she meets a few friends along the way, you know, the scarecrow, the tin man, and the cowardly lion. And she makes her way to the Emerald City and to the wizard. And what we see here in this video clip is we see that this is Dorothy's second visit to the wizard. And what the wizard did is is the wizard said that he would help her out, but he wanted her to do a few things first. He wanted her to go and uh, do away with the wicked witch of the West, and he wanted her to bring him her broomstick. And so she does just that. She meets the wizard. She says, I have the broomstick. Now it's time to uphold your end of the bargain. You need to help me get home. And we soon realize that this wizard really has no intention of helping Dorothy at all. What we find out is that this wizard isn't a wizard at all. Her little doggy Toto pulls the curtain back. And what you see is you see a man behind a control board pushing buttons, pulling levers, all with the effort to make himself appear to be someone or something that he's not. And this is where we're at in our clip this morning. And just a little bit of backstory to the Wizard of Oz, if you don't know it already. This guy behind this curtain, behind this control board, his name is Oscar. And he's this man that has this deep desire in his heart to be someone great. He has a deep desire to showcase himself in such a way that people will be impressed by him. And his motives behind this desire have nothing to do with helping anyone else. It has everything to do with his own glory and his own praise and his own affirmation. What we're going to see in our text today as we continue in our series through the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew is we're going to see that Jesus warns his audience of this very exact thing. In fact, Jesus goes as far as to label this behavior, the examples that he gives, the people who are acting this way, as hypocrites. It's kind of a harsh word. And typically, when we think of hypocrisy, or when we think that someone's being a hypocrite, what we think of is we think that someone is uh, telling someone else to do something or to not do something, and then they turn around and do the exact opposite. We say a hypocrite is someone who says one thing and does the other. And folks, i got to admit to you this morning, I'm, I'm guilty of this many times, especially with my kids. You know, my, it's pretty common for my daughter to ask for a sugary snack before bed. And so she may come up to me and say, Daddy, I, I want a cookie before bed. And I break into this speech about how bad cookies are for you, and they give you a tummy ache before bed, and they're bad for your teeth before bed. And I put them down for bed, and the next thing I know, I'm opening the fridge, and I'm getting the break and bakes out, and the, the milk, and I'm enjoying some cookies. And by our definition, that's hypocrisy. But what Jesus is getting at here when he's addressing these hypocrites is he's using a different word for hypocrisy. He's using a word that is literally referring to a Greek stage performer, an actor. And what these people would do before their performance, they would go up before an audience, is they would put a mask on, they would get dressed up, they would change their voice, they would change their mannerism, and it was all with the aim of convincing their audience that they were someone completely different than who they really were. 
And the whole motive for doing this was to get a reward from the audience. And that reward was the applause. It was the affirmation that they got from their performance. And so this is the type of hypocrisy that Jesus is addressing this morning. And again, I got to confess, I've, I've been guilty of this kind of hypocrisy too. I've had many moments in my life where I've tried to change who I was. I tried to put on this persona that really wasn't who I was in an effort to impress others, in an effort to get affirmation from others, in an effort to convince people that they should like me. And my guess this morning is that I'm not alone in this. My guess this morning is that we've all, to some degree or another, struggled with this type of hypocrisy in our life. We may be even struggling with it right now in this moment. Like Oscar, there's a deep desire within all of us to be affirmed and to be praised. And so many times we spin knobs, we push buttons, we pull levers to get affirmation from others. And I got to say, this struggle is personally frustrating for me. It's frustrating for a lot of reasons. But the main reason why it's frustrating for me is because I know hypocrisy is one of the main reasons why people don't come to church. It's one of the main reasons why people leave the church. You know, people have completely written off the church because of hypocrisy. And it's frustrating because I know that my actions have contributed to this dysfunctional behavior. But one thing we need to understand this morning is that hypocrisy is not just unique to Christianity. Hypocrisy isn't even just unique to religion. Hypocrisy is a human issue. It's a condition that we all carry with us to one degree or another. And what we'll see today is that Jesus offers us some upside-down teaching that will help us pivot from a place of pursuing affirmation from other people to a place of pursuing the affirmation from our Father, the pleasure from our Father. And so with that, will you stand with me as I read our text this morning? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. If you're using our Pew Bible, it's on page 811. And the text is also going to be up here on the screen. We're going to cover verses 1 through 6 and verse uh, 16 through 18. So let's read God's word. Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? 
Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would illuminate it this morning. We pray that you would let it pierce our hearts this morning. We pray that you would give us a reflection of uh, our hearts this morning and where they're at. And we pray that you would begin to work on those areas of our hearts, Lord, that are working to steal glory and and praise from you and and, and to bring it onto our, our own selves, Lord. Father, would you help us? Would you give us your grace? Give us ears to hear this morning. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, for the sake of an outline, if you're taking notes this morning, I want to lay out three things that I see Jesus doing in this passage. And I think these three things will be helpful for us to see and to think about this morning. And so the first thing that I see Jesus doing in this passage and at the very beginning in verse 1 is he offers a clear warning. We see this at the very beginning. The second thing we see Jesus doing is he lets us know that there is a reward to be had because of our actions. And more specifically, Jesus gives us some examples to show us how there's a reward to be had, but he he shows us us that there's really two rewards that we gain based on how we treat this topic this morning. And lastly, Jesus offers us an alternative. He offers us a better way. He offers us hope. And so getting into our outline here, the first thing is that Jesus offers us a warning. What is this warning? Like I said, it's right at the beginning of verse 1. Jesus gets right to the point here. And like every good sermon, his sermon has a dominant thought, has a big idea, and he lays it out right at the very beginning. And it comes in the form of this warning. He says, beware. Be careful. If you're reading the NLT, the the, the NLT says this, watch out. He's trying to get our attention. Don't practice your righteousness in such a way in order to be seen by others. Simply put, what Jesus is telling us here is, hey, don't be a spiritual show-off. When you go to practice your righteousness, don't make a big to-do about yourself in order to be seen by others. And so this is our warning. This is the exhortation that Jesus is giving us. And after he gives this warning... Still in verse 1, he gives us the explanation. He gives us what the consequences are if we fail to listen to this warning. And the consequence is this. You will lose your Father's reward in heaven. And so this is the big point that Jesus wants to get across to his audience. Now, a popular question that we like to ask today in our postmodern society, when someone tells us to do something or tells us not to do something, a question that we, at least we think in our mind is, Why? Why do you want me to do that? Why should I not do that? And so I want to sort of ask that question. Why is Jesus offering this warning to his audience? Well, I thought of two good reasons why he offers this warning. I'm sure there are more, but I thought these were really good reasons to share. And so the first reason that Jesus offers this warning is he wants to create space and give room to his audience. He he wants to give them a better example. And as we see from the rest of the text, Jesus does give us better examples. He gives us good examples of what to do, how to practice our righteousness. But if you notice in these examples, Jesus gives a contrasting example first. And in this example that he gives of what not to do, he uses an object. And the object of these examples are the Pharisees, the religious leaders. 
And it's safe to guess that these are the Pharisees and the the religious leaders because Jesus is constantly criticizing them for this hypocrisy in many places in the Gospels. And one specific verse in Matthew 23, in the same book, Jesus essentially says that the Pharisees do all of their deeds in order to be seen by others. They dress themselves in a certain way so that people will look at them and be in awe, will be impressed. And so Jesus uses these leaders as an example. And he does so because he knows his audience. His audience that he's speaking to is primarily made up of Jews. Who have, who has, uh, they've observed Jesus and they've said, I want to follow that man. I want to follow this Jesus. And so knowing that that's his audience, he knows that they, for such a long time, they've been looking to these religious leaders as their example. They've been the model for how to practice righteousness. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, hey, listen, quit looking to them as your example. They've been a terrible example for you. If anything, if you're to look at them as an example, look at them as an example of what not to do. I'm here to offer you a better way. And so that's the first reason why. The second reason why is because Jesus knows the hearts of mankind. He knows the hearts of his audience. He knows the hearts of the Pharisees. He knows our hearts today. And the reality, folks, at its purest form, our hearts are no different than the religious leaders are. Jesus has been observing mankind from the beginning of time. Over and over again, they pursue the praise and adoration of others. You know, one commentator, he he defined this hypocrisy that we're talking about this morning as a constant nurturing of self-image. And this is something that exists in our hearts. There's a feeling in our hearts of saying, I I need to to work on myself. I need to nurture my self-image the way I present myself to people so that I'll be likable, so that people will be impressed by me and the things that I have in my life. So this is what the Pharisees were doing, and this is what we do. And Jesus knew that. He knew that his audience could potentially be prone to that. And so that's why he's addressing it with them. And so this is the warning. This is the warning that Jesus Jesus offers, and this is why he's offering it. Now, a common question that comes up in regards to Matthew 6, 1, uh, typically comes up, it typically comes up with this verse, and people typically say, now, it seems like this verse is contradicting what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus told me to let my light shine before others. He told me to let my good deeds be seen by others. And here it seems like Jesus is telling me the exact opposite. So what gives? I mean, is there a contradiction here? Well, as you may have guessed, my answer to this is no, there is not a contradiction. Without considering the context of each of these verses, it is easy to see that these are contradicting verses. But if we put them in context, it gives us a better understanding for what's going on. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, the context behind that verse, Jesus is addressing the issue here of his followers being fearful to show their faith, to show their righteousness in front of others, in front of the world, in front of people who aren't following Jesus. They may be hesitant or fearful. You know, they may be afraid to be ridiculed, to be mocked, to be persecuted if someone who doesn't believe the way that they do sees what they're doing. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, listen, listen, you are the light of the world. 
let your light shine. And the result of that, at the very end of that statement, is so that others will see the Father and will glorify him. In chapter 6, verse 1, what Jesus is addressing here is the, ex- the exact opposite issue. It's this tendency that we have when we're around people who believe and think like we do, and we sort of want to stand out, we sort of want to, want to be special, and so there's a temptation for us to show off, to show how unique we are and how distinct we are so that people will think that we're special. People will see, see and think that we're more holy and more spiritual than what we really are. And the temptation is to draw attention onto ourselves. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, don't do that. When you're tempted to do that, maybe taper off a little bit. You know, if you want to get involved in church and serve, why do you want to do that? Is it because you're afraid that people are wondering why you're not involved? And if you get involved, they're going to think you're a better Christian and that's your motive for getting involved? Jesus is telling us not to do that. Pastor Kevin DeYoung, he's a pastor up in Michigan, uh, has a really good quote uh, for talking about the, the, the distinction between these two verses. He says this. It's a really good quote. We ought to show when we are tempted to hide. And we ought to hide when we are tempted to show. It's really good. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at here in this passage. And what Jesus is getting at in both of these passages, he's, he's getting at our motives our intentions behind what we're doing. Okay, so now that we've cleared that up, I want to move on in our outline to our next point, and it's the point that there is a reward to be had for our actions. And in this section specifically, I want to address the reward that the hypocrites get. That seems kind of interesting, right? Jesus says, if you do these things in such a way to make yourself a hypocrite, you will receive a reward. A good takeaway statement for this section is this. The one you want to be seen by is the one who will reward you. I'll say that again if you want to write it down or memorize it. It's the one you want to be seen by is the one who will reward you. We just spent a lot of time at the beginning of this sermon talking about hypocrisy. And here in chapter 6, Jesus gives us, again, three examples of what this hypocrisy looks like. He uses the example of giving, prayer, and fasting. And they may, they may seem kind of random. But for the Jew, these were like the three pillars of pious living. If you didn't do these things as a Jew, you, you might not be a Jew. So anyone who was anyone in this day who said, I, I'm a Jew, the, these are three things that they would do. And what Jesus uses in his examples with these three things, he says things like this. You blow your trumpet and you make it super obvious to everyone when you give money to the needy. When you pray, you stand in the synagogue and you pray on the street corners so that others may be seen by you. And when you fast, you disfigure your face and apparently you don't bathe to make it seem like you're suffering and you you want people to see you suffering. And so these are the examples of what this hypocrisy looks like in their day when the religious leaders committed these acts. They did them in such a way to be seen by others. And what Jesus says at the end of each of these examples is that they have received their reward. So what is this reward? Well, I'll say this. It's not the kind of reward you get when you turn in America's most wanted man or woman to the FBI. It's not that kind of reward. 
That's a good reward, right? That's a hefty reward. When I think of this reward, I think of Magic Mountain. You're probably wondering, why do you think of Magic Mountain when you think of this reward? Well, when I was a kid, my uncle, who was in his like mid-30s probably, he was essentially a big kid, took us to Magic Mountain. And I'm convinced that he wasn't interested in taking us to Magic Mountain, but it was more a better excuse to his wife to take us to Magic Mountain so he could go play video games. I'm convinced of that. But anyway, so my uncle, he he took my cousins and my siblings and me to Magic Mountain on a pretty regular basis. And if you're not familiar with Magic Mountain, Magic Mountain is this place when you walk in, it's this huge room full of video games, full of arcade games. And you, you know, you pay your money, you play the games, and depending on how well you did, you got tickets. And when you got your tickets and you're done playing, you got to take your tickets up to the front counter and you got to redeem your tickets for a prize, for a reward. And what Magic Mountain would always do is they would put out, I'm kind of dating myself here, they would put out things like a Sega Genesis or a a boombox with a CD player. They'd put out that life-size teddy bear and they'd sort of make you feel like, I got a chance of winning one of those. I'm going to win. I'm going to win that Sega Genesis. Every time I went to Magic Mountain, that was my goal, was to get one of these prizes. And so we would be there for a couple of hours. We would play our video games and it, sometimes it seemed like I would have like 10,000 tickets, you know? Like you couldn't even see me walking through Magic Mountain. All you saw was a ball of tickets walking to the front counter. And I'd heave my tickets up, to, you know, up onto the counter, and I'd ask the worker behind the counter, hey, what's this going to get me? Thinking he's going to be like, well, you can get this life-size teddy bear, you can get this boombox, you can get this Sega Genesis. Well, that's not what he said. Instead, he'd pull out something like a pencil eraser and a tube of chapstick. <laughs> And I'd be like, are you kidding me? That's it? I worked so hard. These video games were easy. I'm sweating over here. I have 10,000 tickets and you're going to give me a pencil eraser and a tube of chapstick. (laughs) These things are worthless. They're going to be clutter at my house. My mom's going to be mad at me because I brought home more junk. And the thing about it was, I don't know why, but every time I kept coming back, I kept coming for that prize, and I, that, that big prize, and I never got it. And so when Jesus is talking about this reward that we get from others, this is sort of what I think of. This meaningless, cheap reward that has little to no value. And this reward for us, folks, is, is the fact that we can impress somebody. And it looks like this. And then it's over. You know, it's, it's over. It, it, it's a five-second applause. It's the possibility that someone will have a positive or a not negative thought about who we are as a person. This is the reward that we chase after sometimes. And folks, I, I got to admit again, I am guilty of the same thing. And one of the ways this plays out the most in my life is at my job. If you don't know, I work here at the church and I, a, a major part of my job is getting up here in front of all of you every Sunday morning and using a talent that God has given me to play music, to sing, and to lead so that our attention would be put on the Lord and so that we would worship him. And I got to tell you, there, every Sunday I walk in here, I am faced with a choice. I can either make this about the Lord, about his glory, about his praise, or I can make it about myself. And I've had some, internally I've had some ugly moments here at Linworth on Sunday morning. And the thing is, is 
you have no idea. That's one of the most dangerous things about our hypocrisy is most of the time we, we don't know what's going on in someone else's hearts, but God does and we do. We know our hearts. The times that I let my guard down, the times that I don't listen to Jesus' warning to be careful, to beware, to watch yourself, are the times when I notice myself slipping in this direction of looking for affirmation from all of you, from looking for praise from all of you, to seek to impress you in some way. And this is what we do. One of the things I thought of this morning is uh, if Jesus was here teaching on this text and teaching on this topic, uh, it would be a better sermon than this. That we, we can all agree on that. Um, but if he was here teaching on this sermon, what, what are some examples that he would give us? You know, He gave the Jews like three specific examples. What are some examples he would give us? Well, I thought of a few examples that he may give us, and I just wanted to share those with you right now. The first example that I thought of is church attendance. We can be hypocritical in our church attendance. Isn't that crazy to think about? If we don't check our motives in our church attendance, we could come to church for the wrong reason. Coming to church is a good thing. Like We, we should come to church, obviously. But why are you coming to church? Is it to save face? You know, there could be that situation where someone wakes up in the morning on Sunday and they, they say, man, I haven't been to church in like a month. I should really go this morning. You know, I don't want that pastor to think I'm lazy or I'm backsliding. I don't want my small group leader to wonder why I haven't been there in a month. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church this morning. And yeah, it's a good thing that you came to church, but still, that, it's sort of a self-centered reason for coming. You're missing out on so many other things when that's your focus. What about getting into the Word? Getting in the Word, reading the Bible, that's a really good thing. We should do that. But is this our excuse sometimes? Oh man, I, I better get in the Word today. It's Wednesday, I got small group tonight, and that pesky small group leader that I have every Wednesday wants to go around in a circle and ask what we've been reading in the Word. And I can't be that person tonight that has nothing to share. I don't want people to think I'm less spiritual than what I am. And so I need to have something to share. So I'm going to get in the Word, and God, you better give me something to share with my small group tonight. And so I'm going to get in the Word, and that's, that's why we get in the Word. Is that our motive sometimes? Maybe it's not specifically that. Maybe it's something different. The, the last example I thought of is busyness, is our schedule. And I think a lot of us are, are really good at this. You know, we sort of use our full calendar as a trophy. Look how, look how busy I am. Look how committed to the kingdom I am because I, I filled up my calendar with things to do. You know, you get that guy, you walk up to him, or, or girl, um, you, you get that person you walk up to and you're like, hey, how's it going today? And they're like, I'm slammed. I am so busy right now. You could not even possibly understand how busy I am. I go to two life groups on Wednesday. I have a Bible study on Thursday morning. I serve at a soup kitchen four times a week. And I have at least two quiet times a day. I'm sure you've seen my Instagram posts of my quiet times. I mean, look how busy I am. And it's okay to do things for the Lord. It's okay to be involved and to serve. But is your motive behind it? Is our motive behind filling up our calendar the motive to impress? The motive to convince people that you're a spiritual giant? And so this is what we do. You know, I think Jesus has something to say about this, 
this area of busyness, you know, when Mary was at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him and adoring him and just gazing upon him. And then you have Martha sort of, she's running around the house like a chicken with her head cut off. And she's so worried about how clean the house is and how ready everything is. And it's a reflection on who she is as a person. And Jesus comes in and says, hey, slow down. Just calm down. Come sit at my feet. Rest. And so this is what we do. At times, we are hypocrites. We pursue a reward. And this reward, Jesus is trying to show us that this reward is useless. Okay, so lastly, the alternative. Jesus gives us an alternative. He shows us a better way. And this alternative that Jesus gives us, it flies into the face of a culture that is constantly preaching this philosophy of, if you got it, flaunt it. You ever heard that before? I've heard that before. You know, the world tells us, find something you're good at, find something that you're just really good at, and exploit yourself. Put yourself out there and let people see you. Do that thing that you're really good at so that they're impressed by you. So that you'll have value to your life. So you will be worth something. You know, we have things like social media. And I'm not here to back social media. I like social media. There's some good things about social media. But the reality is that we have this platform given to us where we portray ourselves to the world. We paint a picture with our social media profiles of who we are, who our family is, what we're like, what our job is like, and we, we put it out there for the world to see. And here's the dangerous thing about social media, and here's what makes it so tempting to be a hypocrite with our social media, is we have complete control over what people see. That's why they call it media. You know, one of the biggest things we complain about today is the news and how unreliable the news is because they have a bias and they put out facts that they only want you to see and they hide facts that they don't want you to see to twist the story. We do the same thing with our social media profiles. Some of you are like, what's social media? God bless you. <laughs> um, but we do the same thing with our social media profiles. I've, I've done the same thing with our social, my social media profile. We'll take the kids to the park, and it's hot, and I'm sweating, and the kids are just in a bad mood, you know, and they're hungry, and they're not listening to us. And then when we leave the park, we're like, hey, what, we should take a family picture. So we take a family picture. We ask some stranger to take a picture with the phone. They take the picture, and then I post it to Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and then I caption it, and I say, oh, great day at the park with the family. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't a great day at the park. It was a terrible day at the park. But I want people to see that I have... I have it together that I'm a good parent, that I have good, obedient children, and I do so by putting it out there on social media. And so this is what we do. And, you know, I want to make something really clear. I, I skipped over this part, but I want to make something really clear. I am not discouraging us this morning from affirming one another. I don't, I'm not discouraging us in, in telling us you shouldn't compliment one another. The reality is that it's not your responsibility what someone does with a compliment that you give them or an affirmation that you give them. Our responsibility is what we do with the affirmation and the compliment that we get from others. And so I, I just I don't wanna, want us to hear me saying that this morning as we work through this text. And so we looked at the first half of each example in this chapter. You know, Jesus gives us this alternative. Now let's look at the contrast 
the example of what to do, the better example that Jesus gives us. And Jesus says things like this. He says, when you give to the needy, do it in such a way that when you give, even your left hand doesn't know what's going on. When you pray, go into your closet and pray in such a way that only your Father in heaven hears them. And this last one regarding fasting, all, all Jesus is telling us to do is he's saying, hey, look, go through your normal morning routine. Maybe accept breakfast. Take a shower, put on some clean clothes. You know, ladies, don't put dark eyeshadow on to make your eyes look sunken back. Guys, take a shower so you don't smell bad because apparently, you know, bathing is tied into fasting somehow. But he's saying, when, when you fast, just act normal. You know, we have this weird tendency to draw attention to ourselves and to impress others by hardship and by suffering sometimes. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, just be careful. Check your heart in these things. And in each of these examples of what to do, Jesus ends all of them by saying two things. He says, do these things so that your father sees you. And when your father sees you in secrecy, he will reward you. And so what's this reward? Well, I think it's, a, it's the simple reward of pleasing our Father. That's the reward. It's knowing that our Father is pleased with us. One example I thought of with this, going back to the park analogy, when we're having a good day at the park, uh, my daughter, she, she's almost four years old, and she learned how to swing by herself. You know, she kicks her feet out when she goes up, and then she tucks her feet back in when she goes back down. And every time she gets on that swing at the park, there's other people there, she continually yells, Daddy, look. Daddy, watch. Look what I can do. You see what I'm doing? You know what she wants in that moment? She wants to know that her father is impressed by her, that her father is pleased with her. And so I say things like, Honey, that is amazing. I'm, I'm so happy for you. You're doing such an awesome job. And when I do that with my daughter, I know there's a part in her heart where she feels closer to me. She feels like our relationship is deeper. And that's what she's looking for. And that's our reward with the Father. When we're serving in our ministry, when we're going to small group, you know, when we come to church, when we get in the Word, and it's all for the Lord to see and to hear, He says, I'm pleased with you. And there's a reality, folks, that when we do those things, and it's all with the motive of the Father seeing us, it takes us into a deeper fellowship with Him. It's an amazing thing to know that we can please the Father, the one who created all things, the one who created us, the one that crafted us. We can please Him, and He is absolutely crazy about His children. And so this is the better example when we practice our righteousness, when we do all of these things in order to, to be seen by the Father, He is pleased with us. Now, another thing I want to say here is that Jesus isn't um, addressing the issue of having this desire to be affirmed and to be praised. It's not what He's addressing. He's not rebuking the Pharisees for it. He's not rebuking His audience for it. He's not rebuking us for it today. It's okay that when we're doing all these things to say to our father, look, daddy, look what I'm doing. I'm doing this for you. I love you. You're amazing. It's okay. One last question I want to answer is why do we do this? Why are, why are we so prone to this sometimes? I and mean, I think the, the Pharisees, 
They devoted their whole life to this. And I, I don't think that's the case for us. Maybe for some of us, but as a whole, I don't think that's the case for us. But the reality is, is that we do have moments, isolated moments in our life where we give ourselves to this. Some maybe more than others. And so why? Well, in Jeremiah chapter 2, Israel gets rebuked for the same exact thing. In chapter 2, it says this, that, they, that Israel, they have abandoned God, the fountain of living waters, and they have fashioned cisterns for themselves that were broken and couldn't hold water. And so when we crave human praise and we pursue human praise and we pursue the desire to impress others, we're crafting these cisterns that don't hold anything and they leave us empty once again. And that's why we always go back to it. We just, we want more. We want more and we want more. Every, it, it's like the reward that, every other reward that sin offers us, it leaves us empty and wanting more. I think we do this because in those moments, we don't understand how pleased the Father is with us. We don't understand how, lo- how loved we are by the Father. We don't understand how he sees us. You know, John Piper, he talks a lot about this issue. And one of his famous quotes that he says, talking about this issue, is he says, The most effective way of bridling my delight and being made much of is to focus on making much of God. And to a certain degree, I think that's true. I, I think as believers, we, we ought to make much of God. We have to make much of God. That's what makes us a worshiper. But I think his statement fails to paint a full picture. And here's what I mean by that. We don't make much of God until we understand how much God makes of us. We don't aim to please the Father until we understand how pleased he is with us. This happens in salvation, you know? Hopefully, most of the time when someone gets saved, they're getting saved because they hear about how loved they are by the Father. And the way that they hear about how loved they are by the Father, the way that they know that they're loved by the Father is through hearing about Jesus dying on the cross for them. And that that was God's uh, move, or that was God's act of love for you to provide a way of drawing you back to himself. You know, it's interesting to think that Jesus, he didn't even start his ministry until he got this blessing from the Father. You remember when the Father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit came upon him and he started his ministry. Folks, I want all of us to know this morning that God is singing and proclaiming those words over you right now. This is my son. This is my daughter. I am pleased in them. I have given them my Holy Spirit. He is crazy about you. This is the reason why we keep going back to this, because we don't get that sometimes. And this is why the Pharisees did it. They devoted their whole lives to it. Jesus says in the book of Luke that the Pharisees were doing these things because the love of the Father was not in them. And the same is true for us. When we do these things, there's a reality in these isolated moments that the love of the Father is not in us. We don't understand his love. And so I just, I have like two practical um, steps here, two takeaways to take, you know, to take away from this message. And they're really simple. They're, they're pretty cliche, like pastoral things that we should do. But I do think they, they go a long way. And, and the first one is just, I want to ask a question. Do you spend time with the Father? 
It's a question I want to ask. I just went on a date with my wife last night. It was like one of the first dates we've been on in a while. And I got to tell you, after I spent some one-on-one time with my wife, I felt so much closer to her. It's one of the things that we try to do on a regular basis is we try to go on a date with one another because we know when we get together and it's just the both of us, our relationship goes deeper. Our love for one another another goes deeper. And so do you go on dates with the Lord? Do you spend time with the Lord? Because those are the moments when we're with the Lord where we know him more, we understand him more, and our love and, and our fellowship with him goes deeper. You know, maybe for some of us, going on a date with the Lord means getting out to the woods, bringing our Bible, and reading about him. Or getting out to the woods, or anywhere, you know, getting out somewhere, somewhere that's sort of out of your normal, everyday routine, and just praying and talking to God. And so maybe that's your way, or maybe it's community. You know, maybe it's being around a bunch of friends and deep conversations with a really good friend or, you know, a spouse. And so that's the first thing I want to encourage you with, is to spend time with the Lord. That's one way that we are going to know that he loves us and that he's crazy about us. The second thing is is getting in the word. And I know that was part of my first thing, but specifically getting into the word. The Bible isn't the roadmap to life. It's not a book of do's and don'ts. The Bible is one big love story about the father's relentless love for his children. That's what the Bible is. And the Bible is riddled with passages and verses that show and display and talk about the amazing love that the father has for us. And, and what I want to do this morning is I just want to share three of them with you. Three, three verses that have really affected my heart, specifically this last year, in regards to the Father's love. The first one is in Zephaniah 3, 3.17. This is one of my favorite verses. It says this, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. How often do you believe that God is proclaiming over you that he delights in you? How much do you believe that? Seriously, when you think, when you think in your mind and in your heart, how does God view me? Do you, do you think of God that way? The second verse is Psalm 36, 5. It says, your unfailing love, O Lord, is, is as vast as the heavens. It just talks about how big and how amazing and how wide God's love is for us. And lastly, this verse, I want to read this verse as I transition us into a time of communion. It it says this, it's Ephesians 2.4, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, and it's by grace you have been saved. You are deeply loved by the Father, so much so that he sent his son, Jesus, to make a way to bring his people back to himself. And, you know, Jesus' ministry, we talked about Jesus' ministry. His ministry was one that was always aimed at pleasing the Father. His ministry was always one that was aimed at being obedient to the Father. Even to the point of dying on a cross. You think of that prayer in the garden where he says, Father, if, you know, if there's any way to let this cup pass from me, let it happen, but not my will, let your will be done. So even to the point of death, even to the point of this horrific scene where he got beat and punched and mocked and crucified, he wanted to please his father. And this is why we take communion this morning. 
So that's why we take the bread, to remember the broken flesh and the broken body of Jesus. And this is why we drink the cup, to remember and know that the blood of Jesus has washed our sins white as snow, and we can be with the Father. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, the ushers are going to come down and release you by row. You're more than welcome to take communion uh, as you feel. And I want to encourage you this morning, if if you're not sure if you know the Lord or or you know that you don't know the Lord, I would encourage you not to take the bread and the juice because by doing so, you you are proclaiming that I am a son or a daughter of God. So let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, help our hearts. Lord, help us to understand your love better. Lord, we pray that All the things around us in this world that are constantly trying to distract us and divert our attention from you and from your love, Lord, we pray that you would make those things small. Lord, and you would make your presence large. You would make the truth of your love large in our hearts, Lord. And we just pray for the rest of this time this morning, Lord. We pray that you would free up our hearts to be able to freely come before your throne as we sing, as we give, to worship you and to proclaim your name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.